Ezra 5. Uh, and as we, as we read through here, let's just remind ourselves of where we are. The, the Jews have come out of exile after 70 years in exile. They've come out of exile. They've been sent back to the land. They've started rebuilding. They start rebuilding almost immediately. The foundations get laid. The altar is rebuilt. They start to rebuild the walls. And then the adversaries of the people of Judah come out of the woodwork. And they start to come out and they start to blow trumpets and horns against them. And for 15 years, the building stops. 15 years, you have scaffolding sitting over in the side in Jerusalem where the temple's supposed to be being worked on because the people of God stopped the work of God by the decree of erroneous governing officials. Who forced them to stop. And in that 15 year period, no one tried to get back to work. Indeed, what we see in Haggai is that they began to build their own houses and they began to build paneled houses, which means houses with sheetrock in them. That's what that means, by the way, when you read that in Haggai. It just means that there's two walls. There's an exterior wall and there's an interior wall. That's what the paneled houses means. So they are building quality, nice houses that are relatively comfortable. They're not simply surviving. They are building nice, quality homes for themselves while the house of God sits in ruins. And so that's happened and apathy has taken over and there's been kind of this lackadaisical attitude towards worship where they're still coming to worship. The altar's there. They're still having some worship services, but no one is really concerned about the improvement of the body of the temple, of God's house. No one is is concerned. So we see here uh, this setting is that the temple is unfinished for 15 years. And then we have the voices of Haggai and Zechariah that come. The temple sits unfinished and then Haggai and Zechariah show up and the word of the Lord comes to the people of God. The word of the Lord comes to the people of God. And when the word of the Lord comes to the people of God, stuff begins to happen. People change when they hear the word of the Lord. So the voices of Haggai and Zechariah show up. And now remember, in Zechariah, we read this prophecy about horns attacking the people of God and the craftsmen, the four craftsmen, being sent to drive off the horns. It's a weird story, it's a, it's a, but it's a prophetic image story. Horns are trumpets. That kind of horn, not this kind of horn, right? And they were trumpets that are blown, and then people begin to uh, respond to that in fear. And so these horns came, and they intimidate, and they they make the people of God afraid, which happened in Ezra chapter 4. If you remember what we read, that happened at the beginning of Ezra chapter 4. The adversaries of Judah show up, and they begin to blow their trumpets. This chapter seems to be the craftsmen showing up. The craftsmen show up and they drive away the trumpets. So, we've got this thing. The answer to apathy and fear first. The answer to apathy and fear. The rebuilding commences in chapter 5. And the answer to apathy and fear is found in verse 1 and 2. Now, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of 
the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, that's the high priest. Jeshua is the high priest. Zerubbabel is the reigning, governing king, and or the reigning descendant of the king in, uh, in Jerusalem, descended from King David, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So the answer to apathy and fear in life in this text is the word of God. The word of God comes through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. It comes through the prophets and it comes to the people and they are stirred to move. So first we've got Haggai. and Haggai's main theme is rebuild. The time is now trusting God to provide. That's his theme. Rebuild. Rebuild the temple. Get to work. And then he says, the time is now, and trust in God to provide. Those are just three themes in the book of of Haggai. Now, we live in a time period where there is rampant apathy and fear in, in the church in America. There's rampant apathy. Comfort. We have comfortable places that we go to. And when there's not comfort... We tend to say, well, we don't want to actually do the work to do it. If it's hard to do spiritually, we will back away. Charles Spurgeon noted this in England way back in the 1800s, by the way. This is not something new. Spurgeon noted that if you gave somebody five things to do that they had to do every day in order to be saved, no matter how difficult those things were, they would try to do them. Because... If we can take credit for being righteous on our own, then we will strive to do it with everything we are. But because the gospel message is to trust in Jesus for righteousness, to trust in Jesus for salvation, no one does it. Because it's easy and impossible. Because it's easy. It doesn't, you don't, his burden is easy. His yoke is light. It is, it is easy. We trust in Jesus, and that's where salvation is. We, we trust in Jesus, and we have salvation because He did the work already. He's done the work already. So we see that this is the call on Christians to believe in Jesus, believe that what He has done is saved you from sin, that He died on the cross, that your sin would die with Him, and that He rose again, that you would have life, and that He's coming back. That... That if we just believe that we have salvation, Spurgeon points out, if you gave somebody five things to do that were near impossible, they would try their best to accomplish them. But because we tell them that they have to trust in a supreme God who has saved them and rescued them, many will not do it. Indeed, we live in a culture right now where there's apathy even towards that. Where we have apathy and we have fear. We are a people who deal with apathy and fear. So what is the urging for Christians at this time? What is the urging? And I think we find it in Scripture here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. He tells us, make the most of the time for the days are evil or the days are against you. Make the most of the time for the days are evil or the days are against you in Ephesians 5, 6, 16. And in Hebrews 4, 11, he urges us to strive to enter that rest that has been provided for Jesus. There's an interesting thing. Striving, wrestling, fighting to enter rest. 
to be at rest. Strive, work hard to be at rest. Third, we have Romans 12.1. Offer your lives as a living sacrifice to the Lord. For this is your spiritual act of worship. We are to offer our lives, all that we are, as a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. And then what we read earlier, Ephesians 2 verse 10. There is a work that is prepared beforehand for you to do. For Christians, the time to get to work is now. The time to work is now. And we should trust the Lord with that work. We should trust the Lord that He will provide for that work of building the temple of God. The temple of God, of course, as we've seen over and over through our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, as we've seen over and over, the temple of God now is us. The body of Christ together. The church, the body of Christ, believers together. So then you come to Zechariah. And we have the themes of Zechariah. The Lord is with you and the Lord wins. And remember that we saw this, the, the outline of Zechariah is the Lord. Look upon the Lord's person. Look upon the Lord's uh, promises and look upon the Lord's purposes. Right. So there's these three things that kind of divide the book. And you've got the visions at the beginning, the eight visions at the beginning, the crowning of the uh, priest king. Then you've got some historical data in the middle. And then you've got kind of eschatological stuff in times and also uh, victorious uh, Jesus coming coming for the first time and Jesus coming back for the second time. You've got all of that wrapped up in the last chapters 9 through 14 of Zechariah. But the theme being that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is with you and the Lord wins. The Lord wins and the Messiah is with you. This, this sounds awful similar to what Jesus tells us, right? That He is with us. Right. Zechariah tells us the Lord is with us. Jesus and in the New Testament, it echoes the same thing when Hebrews 13, five quotes Deuteronomy saying that the Lord has promised he will never leave you nor forsake you. And then in John 14, verse 18, when Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans and then promises the Holy Spirit to walk within us and with us as a people that he promises that you me we get the holy spirit just think about that for a minute just think about that for a second you get the holy spirit of god indwelling inside you indwelling with you he does not leave you or forsake you and then remember the great promise of matthew 28 20 i am with you always even to the ends of the earth jesus has promised that truth that he will be with us forever the lord is with you The Lord is with you. So think about the things that are weighing heavy in your life. The things that weigh heavy on your mind and on your heart. Jesus promises he is with you. All the difficulties of this life, he walks through them with you. He's the only God who does this. Who decides he's going to actually tie his life to yours and walk alongside you. Your ups and your downs, he feels. You weep. And mourn over death. And he weeps and mourns with you. You rejoice over victories. And he's happy for you. He enjoys you. I, I think we can sometimes make Jesus ethereal and distant. And forget that he's right here. That when you're going through a difficult time. And you go, Lord, where are you? He's going, I feel the pain 
to, I'm right here with you. When you're victorious and you're like, look at what I've done. And he's like, yes, you've done great. And it, it matters that you understand this. It matters that you understand this because this God that we serve, this Jesus Christ who died that you would have life and rose or died that you would be free from sin and rose that you would have life. This God who did this for you is present with you. And he is walking with you. He is with you. He's with you always. Then second message of Zacharias, the Lord wins. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says he disarmed all the powers and authorities, putting them un, to open shame. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, it reminds you that he has defeated death itself. That he has defeated death itself. And in Romans chapter 8 verse 37, it says as a result of that victory in Jesus, you have become more than conquerors. You have become more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. We have also in 1 John 5, verse 4, everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. Isn't that great? Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. An action that has nothing to do with you. Being born. You are the thing that is born. You didn't do anything to make that happen. I mean, everybody in here knows kids come out on their own. They, get, they come out, and it's the mother and the father that had something to do with their start, and God who brings them out. I mean, it's miraculous. My dad was an obstetrician and a gynecologist. He, he delivered babies. He did it all the time. And he would tell you, all the medical knowledge in the world, this is still a miracle every time. It's still miraculous every single time. Stuff happens during the birth that science knows happens. We know it happens. We know what we know what happens. We know why. We don't know how. It just kind of does. Dad used to say it's like breathing. Yeah, we know that your muscles contract and you have lungs that open and close. We know how to make that force, how to force it with machines. We know those things. We don't know why a person has the involuntary structure. That they just breathe. Like we can't explain it other than there's something, a spark of life somewhere. Christians are in the corner going, we know! But this is, this is the reality. Everyone born of God, born of God, overcomes the world. You did nothing to overcome except be born. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? You, didn't, you don't have to do a ton. You don't have to do five steps to overcome. There's not a self-help book that you have to follow the six programs of or get in a, a chip every six months to prove that you've overcome. No, there's, you've overcome the world simply by trust in Christ Jesus, a passive action. It's beautiful. Second Deuteronomy 20, verse 40. I mean, verse four, the Lord will fight for his people. This is a promise that's held throughout all of scripture in every age. The Lord will fight for his people. And in John sixteen thirty three, Jesus has overcome the world. We trust in Christ. We overcome because he overcame. 
He has overcome the world. The Word of God here comes to the people of God and empowers the work of God. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah rise up during the time of Ezra when everybody's apathetic and they're loaded with fear and they begin to preach the Word of God comes to the people of God and empowers the work of God. If you are struggling as a believer to meet forward momentum in any area of life, the Word of God comes to the people of God and empowers the work of God. Proclaim the Word to yourself by reading it. And studying it. Proclaim the world, the word to one another by speaking it over each other, by praying about and for each other. Proclaim the word of the Lord to the lost. And listen to the word of the Lord proclaimed to you by the saints. Indeed, this is beautiful when the word of God is proclaimed, the work of God is empowered. So the first one is an answer to apathy and fear is the word of God. The second thing to note here is that God is with his people. God is with his people. When the prophets Haggai and the prophets Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Did you see that in there? Did you see that in verse 1? This God of, of Israel is over them. He's over them. This is the image of him standing above in both protection and observance of them. He is over them. He's the one in charge of them. This is critical to understand at the beginning of Ezra chapter 5 because did you notice how many times Darius is called king? Every time his name is mentioned by Tatanai in that letter. Darius the king. Darius the king. Darius the king. Because for Tatanai, Darius is in charge. But the Jews know better. The people of God know better. They know who's in charge. They know Darius isn't in charge. They know that the victory is won in the Lord God Almighty, God the Lord of hosts, the King of all glory, and Darius is under him. We know that this is our master. This is our Lord. Indeed, when we face this world, we know that our Lord is king over all things. And we see God is with his people. He is over his people in verse 1. And then jump down to verse 5 and you see that, that phrase, The eye of God was on the leaders, the elders of Israel. The elders of the Jews. So the eye of God is on them. So they're, they have his protective covering as the one who's in charge of everything. And they have his urging and his comfort as he looks down upon them. This is the same idea as what happens in the book of Exodus when they've cried out for 400 years. And it says the Lord saw them. The Lord saw their cries. He saw and he heard their cries. They lifted to him and he sees and knows what is happening. That's the same idea. God is present among them. He's with them. And He is over them. He is Lord in verse 5. So the answer to apathy and fear is the Word of God. Second, God is with His people. And third, God supports the rebuilding through His prophet's voice. Look at verse 2. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, rose and began to build, rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The proclamation of the word of God supports the work of God. You proclaim the word of God 
and the work of God is supported. This is how we encourage one another through the Word of God. It's one of the reasons that one of our key prayer points when we pray for each other is that we would disciple each other well through the Word of God. That that would come out of us and overflow and we would disciple one another well through the Word of God. God supports this work through the voice of His prophets. So let's look at how this is. The Word of God first stirs the soul. How does God support through the work of His prophet's voice? The Word of God stirs the soul. We see the Word of God stirring the soul in Zechariah's where he explains that Zerubbabel and Jeshua are stirred up to do the work in Zechariah chapter 1. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, that great passage where it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for the proof, correction, training, and righteousness that the man of God might be, might be equipped for every good work. This is 2 Timothy 3, 16. This idea that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Just grab hold of that for a second. Remember, how did God create life in the garden? He builds Adam from the dirt, and then he breathes into his nostrils. And that moment when he breathes into the nostrils of Adam, Adam comes to life. So likewise with us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul reminds us, that the scripture is the breath of God for us. It brings us life, animates our very soul. The word of God is the animating force of life. Another way is that it gives us instruction and encouragement for life. In Romans fifteen four, he says it, it both gives you instructions for how to live and encouragement to do so. Then we have the word of God stirring the soul. The second thing the Word of God does is the Word of God has power. It comes in power. In Isaiah 55, verse 11, you're familiar with this verse. This is a great one. The Word of God does not return void. It will not return void. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, the Word of God cuts to the marrow, to the soul of man, and cuts to the very core of who we are. The Word of God stirs the soul. The Word of God has power, and the Word of God comes from God and gives guidance. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 through 21, he says it comes from God to give us guidance and life. So, we've got these four statements here about what the Word of God, how does the Word of God support the rebuilding of His temple? Here you go. Stirs the soul. It has power. It comes from God and gives guidance. And finally, the Word of God empowers life. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, remember what Jesus responds Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Word of God gives life. I, I want you to hear the first part. We, we tend to major on the first part. Man does not live by bread alone. We tend to go, Oh, yeah, I don't live by bread alone. Listen to the second part. And take out the conditional. Take out the take out the that uh, contrastive chi, which is the but. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's a statement in itself. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your life is bound up and found in the word of God. Now, let's look at Ezra chapter five, verses three. 
through 5 here and read the horns blowing. This is the past this is the part where the horns begin to blow. The horns well they've been blowing, but this is the part where they they see the rebuilding and Tatanai gets nervous and it says at the same time Tatanai the governor of the province beyond the river and Shethar Bozanai and their associates came and they spoke to them thus who gave you a decree to build this building this house and to finish this structure and they asked them also what are the names of the men who are building this building this is classic right this is like if you've ever been in a management situation where somebody has miscommunicated something this is standard operating procedure. Who told you you could do this? And what's your name? What's your name? Give me your badge number. Give me your employee ID. Right? That's what they're asking for. Who's your boss? And what's, what's your name? So I know who to complain about. That's what this is. This is straightforward government bureaucracy. This is, you did not ask my permission to do this. Now, most of us have worked for an employee or an employer at some point. And so we know this is how this works. The bureaucracy goes, who's, your, who's in charge and what's your name so that I can blame you for it when I talk to who's in charge? Right? Verse 5. But the eye of God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. The Jews started to build again. They started to rebuild because Haggai and Zechariah were like, enough of this stopping. It's been 15 years. We're done. It's time to get to work. And they urge the people, and the people gather, and they start to rebuild. And there's this triumphant rebuilding. And this time, when the adversaries of the Lord come out against them, they are prepared because they've got the word of God behind them. They've got the voice of the Lord urging them forward. Indeed, if you will fill yourself with the word of God, you will be prepared when things go rough. So Tatsunai comes and he blows his horn and he begins to attack. The people of God are about to get, are about the word. When the people of God get about the worship of God, the adversaries come out. And they ask these logical questions. Who's in charge? And what are your names? Now, the name thing becomes important here in a second. The name thing becomes important by way of application for us. And I want you to understand that in the Old Testament and New Testament, in the ancient Near Eastern, uh, in the ancient Near East, that's Israel, Syria, Lebanon, all those places, in that area of the world, names and knowing someone else's name gave you authority. You saw this when Jesus dealt with demons in the New Testament. When he says, what's your name? And the demons suddenly are silent and submit. When the demons try to exercise authority over Jesus and they say, we know who you are. And it backfires on them. When the, when the demonic figures come out and they beat the sons of Sceva, the seven sons of Sceva, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, the seven sons of Sceva try to exercise a demon, they're Jewish exorcists, and they come out and they're, they're trying to do battle with this demon. And they say, in, Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches, we cast you out. And the demon goes, I know who Jesus is, and I've heard of Paul. I don't know you. And it beats the clothes off of them. You know you lost the fight when you get beat naked. Just saying. Beats the clothes off him. He knows 
They don't know his name. There's no authority there. That demon's terrified of Jesus. And he's heard of Paul, and Paul, ner- Paul makes him nervous. Right? This is, this is wild. The, the names, they're asking for names. They're asking for authority. But remember verse 5. God's eye is with them. God was watching, and so they persisted. God was watching, so they persisted. They don't stop building. That's one of the things I love about this passage. In verse 5, they come, they get questioned, and they're like, well, we're going we're gonna to run this up the chain, and we're going to check on you, and they, they do the whole, like, we're going we're gonna to take your names, and we're going to go tell your bosses, and you're going to be in big trouble, mister. And they tell them that, and the Jews are like, all right. And they just keep building. They just keep working until the answer comes back from Darius, which, by the way, chapter 6, it's in their favor. They end up winning. The horns get scared away. But the horns won't stop them this time. Because God has sent the craftsmen. And they are victorious here. If we remember, brothers and sisters, if we remember that the Lord sees our every step and walks with us, oh, the adversaries of this life will fade by the wayside. If we remember that he is a God of seeing, a God who sees me, then the adversaries will not scare us. And those things that would try to take our identity and threaten us would not have victory. The Lord sees. And because the Lord sees, we will persist in holiness and righteousness. Now, the report goes to Darius in chapter in chapter 5, verse 6. Through ten, this copy, the copy of the letter is given there, and I just want you to scan through that with your eyes and note how many times names are mentioned. Names and titles are incredibly important. Tats and I wants everybody to know he's the governor. His partners want everybody to know that they're in charge, so they keep saying it. Tats and I, the governor beyond the river, and his cohort, his associates are all there together. Names and titles. Matter King Darius is mentioned over and over and over again. You see there in verse 7 to the king, Darius the king. You see it again. I mean, in verse 6, Darius the king. In verse 7, Darius the king. You can just scan through and you can see it over and over and over. Darius is king. Darius is king. Cyrus was king. They're all king, king, king. They've got titles and names and positions. But what's strikingly absent from this is any name of Jews after verse 2. Not a single one of them says their name. Not a one. Can you imagine how frustrated Tat and I, the Karen of the story. If your name's Karen, I apologize. You know, that's colloquialism. But the Tat and I of the story must be when they refuse to give their employee a badge number. When they refuse and they go, look, I just work here. Names and titles matter so much to the world. Names and titles matter a ton to the world. But to us, there's one name that matters. And there's one name that matters. And here's the crazy thing. That one name, that one person that matters, Jesus Christ, He knows your name. And your name matters to Him. Indeed, in Revelation, we are given a a stone with those who conquer and overcome are given a stone with a name on it that only you and he know. That are for, that's for you. He knows you. It doesn't matter if this world knows your name. 
doesn't one day the, the accolades of man fall flat when you consider the glory of the idea that Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, cares enough to actually name you. To write your name down. And to want you as his. The accolades of this world fall flat. And I don't care if you're Tatanai, the governor of whatever. I have a God who is greater than this. Names and titles are listed here as their thing. The world finds their identity in names and titles. Then they use words that inflate the feeling of a threat. Did you notice that too? They're building with huge stones and massive timbers in the wall. And it's it's producing. It's good work. They're building it fast. You got to do something, Darius. You got to do something. They're building this thing fast. And there's big stones and timbers. And it's frightening. Darius, you got to do something. They inflate. They inflate the feeling of threat with their words. Then the success bothers the officials. Success bothers the officials. These Jews are building the house of God and they're having success with it. And it bothers the officials. They're building fast and well and big. This temple is going to be something that matters, Darius. We've got to stop this. This temple is going to be something that matters. Listen, the world is perfectly fine with you worshiping. I just want you to hear that. The world is perfectly fine with you worshiping as long as they don't have to look at it. As long as they don't have to see it, the world is going to be perfectly fine with you worshiping. That's what's going on here. They're perfectly fine with the altar being out in the open where they can come smash it if they need to. They're perfectly fine with that. The problem that they have is when you start to look like impressive When your worship begins to become important, the world is fine with measured praise. The world is fine with measured praise. But when it it becomes extravagant or challenging to their own greatness, they will push against it. The world will push against it. When your praise becomes extravagantly radical, they begin to call you a cult. They begin to call you crazy. When you become saturated in holiness, they begin to say that you're legalistic and you don't deserve anything and you can't do these things. And they begin to say that the world will push against radical Christianity, radical faith all the time. The world will trouble you. In this world, you will have trouble. They will trouble you. They're fine with measured praise as long as they don't have to see it. Consider Judas. Right, Even inside the disciples, even inside the twelve, consider Judas and the woman with the alabaster jar. She comes and breaks the jar and begins to whitewash Jesus. He anoints his feet with it and she has anointed Jesus with this expensive perfume. And what does Judas do? Hey, that could have been used differently. That could have been sold and we could have given alms to the poor and... You know, the gospel authors aren't, aren't deceived at the end of the book. They know that he was a liar and a thief and he was stealing money. They know that he didn't really mean that. But that's what we see happening. The people of God come to worship God. They begin to serve and work in the kingdom of God. And what happens? The adversaries of God come out in force. And they get mad and they begin to say otherwise. And they're fine with your praise as long as it's measured. 
measured praise is fine. But when it becomes extravagant, they will push against it. For they ask for names. They ask for names, and I love the fact that the Jews don't give them any names. They ask for names, and the Jews are like, "Uh uh-huh, we're servants of the Most High God, and they'll just keep working. They don't bother with the names. Why? Because it doesn't matter to them. They've got one name on their mind, and that's Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty. They've got one name in mind. They do not care about their own names. Why? Because my name doesn't matter. There's one name that saves. One name in heaven and earth, and that's Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the word Yeshua. Right? The Lord saves. Salvation is from Yahweh. That's what that name means. This is the one name that matters. It's the one name we should herald. It's the one name that we should, be, that we should put forward. When this world demands our names, we point to Him. When this world says, Your name isn't adequate, we say, You're right. My name isn't adequate. But His name is. And I work for him. I work for him. So, why do they ask for names? Individuals are easier to defeat. Right? If you're an individual who's got a name, a head, a name, I can, I can pick on you. I can, I can get your name. Now, don't get me wrong. I know the way the world works. If I call somebody and they are, this is, I'm just going to be real transparent with you, and they are rude to my wife over the phone, and I call them afterwards, oh, I'm getting everybody's name. I'm getting everybody's name, and I'm getting your boss's name, and I'm getting his boss's name. And I'm going to cause a stir, because that's the one way to tick me off. You can't do much that upsets me, except say something to my wife and watch. Right? That's the only way. And I know that if I get your name, it's easy to win. You don't need my name. I need yours. So I take their name. Well, what's your name? My name is Mr. Elkins. I am customer. (laughs) Groups take more effort to manage. Tats and I knows that if I get the names of the guys in charge, he asks for the names of the heads. Uh, Literally, it says the leaders. I mean, it says the elders. He asks for the names of the elders. It literally reads, he asks for the names of the heads of the people of Israel. He is asking for their name. He's asking for the heads of the name so that he doesn't have to go around the whole group. Everybody's there building. So he doesn't want to have to grab a hundred people and go, all right, everybody, come over here. I'm the governor. Tats and I, the governor, you all know my name. It shows up on your city bills. Come over here and let me address all 300 of you that are working today on this project. Instead, he wants the name of the guy that he can go to to make him do that work. Managing a large crowd is a whole lot easier when you know names. Groups take more effort to manage. And then finally, hierarchy passes the buck of management. Tats and I says, I asked them for their names, Darius. I asked them for their names. I asked them for their names because they're the ones. It's their fault. It's not my fault. Don't. I mean, my name's Tats and I, the governor beyond the river. But it's not my fault. It's their fault. So the, I asked them for their names. They wouldn't give it. That's his, that's his point. Hierarchy make, passes the buck of management. If you have a hierarchy then you only have to deal with the person on top. That's what's great about the church of Jesus Christ. When 
the persecution of the church of Jesus Christ began in communist Romania and communist China. When communist rule was running, there was a distinct difference between the two different groups of churches. In communist Romania, they had a hierarchy. They had a hierarchy where there were bishops and leaders and, and church leaders. And, and so they knew who to go get. In communist China, everybody was a part. So if you took the pastor out, next week somebody else was preaching. In Nick Ripkin's book, Nick Ripkin's book, can't remember what the name of it is right now. You can look up Nick Ripkin. In that book, he talks about how the church in communist China rose and grew. And the church in communist Russia and in communist Romania uh, struggled and did not grow in persecution, but struggled deeply. Because when the leader was taken out, they stopped meeting. But in China, when the leader was taken out, somebody else took over. Just the next guy stepped up. Because there wasn't a hierarchy. There wasn't a hierarchy. Oh, that churches like ours in America, if they come to my door and arrest me, I expect you guys to keep meeting. And I expect somebody else to leave. We got several men in this church. You better step up. If that happens, we are not a hierarchy. And I've said this before, we are an oddly shaped amorphous blob all headed towards Jesus. With Jesus in the middle. I don't make all the decisions. That's not how we work. If you ask me you want to do something, you say, I want to do this. I go, great, do it. You ask Andrew, I want to do this. He's going to say, great, do it. We're not going to do it for you. It's not how our church works. We are a group, a family. We're all going the same direction. That's how we work. Indeed, hierarchies make it easy to pass the buck of management. When you don't have a hierarchy, everyone's responsible. Everyone's responsible. That's not to say you don't have leadership structures, by the way. That's to say hierarchy as in I'm in charge That doesn't exist. Structures of responsibility exist. Like, I'm responsible for this. I have to answer for these things. Those exist. But I'm in charge. You can't question what I say. That doesn't exist. That's not what we do. Christians live in community together, spurring one another on to the kingdom. So we see why they ask for the names. And now let's get to the response of the servants of God. They call themselves there in verse, uh, let's see, verse 11. And their reply to us was, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Let's just take that. That's their name. They ask for the name. And this is what they give them. We are the servants. Hear this. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Hear that one first. We are the servants of God of heaven and earth. We do not have authority. We are underneath someone else. We are the servants of God of heaven and earth. Now hear it this way. We are the servants of God of heaven. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. This is the God above everything. He's the God of the sky. And we're his servants. I belong to him. I work for him. He's my king. He's my Lord. They come and ask, who gave you the right to do this? I go, the God of heaven. 
I'm the servant of the God of heaven. He's over all things. Now read it again. I'm the servant of the God of heaven and earth. Even your stuff. He's the God even of this earth. Tatanai, he owns you. He is the God of everything. Darius is his. He's the God of earth too. So we understand their response is that their identity is wrapped up in the character and the power of the God of heaven and earth. They are servants of the God of heaven and earth. That is an awesome response. Just one person comes to you and goes, who gave you the right to be this way? Who gave you the right to tell us how we should live as a moral, functioning society? Who gave you the right to do that? You look at them. I am a servant of the God of heaven and earth. That's who gave me the right. That's who called me to live this radical Christian life and to be this way. So their character and identity is wrapped up in God. And then they explain... That their name, the names don't matter. Sorry, I blew through all this. And that this is God's house. They explain that this is God's house. They're building the house of God there in verse 11. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which great king of Israel built and finished. So they're building this house. They have an identity found in God and that their names aren't important. There's one God whose name is important. And then they also are building... God's house. There's a history wrapped up in what they are doing here. This is not new. This is how God has operated from the beginning. So they're servants of God of heaven and earth. They are sons of those who angered God. This they include here in verse 12. But because our fathers had angered God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonian. They own their own history. They own their wicked history. They are sons of those who angered this God. We have a history of wickedness, but we have a God of grace. We have a history of wickedness, but we have a God of grace. Their history proves His grace. First, their history proves his grace. Just consider for a moment your life as a Christian. We read this passage at the beginning of the service, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Just if you want to flip to the front of your bulletin and see it, you can see what does it describe you as. Before Christ, you were dead. You were followers of the principal, prince of the power of this air. You walked in disobedience with the other sons of disobedience. Then there's that great passage in Romans 5, verses 1 through 10. And if you read through it, you'll see who we are. Who we were before Christ is we were people who were weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies of God. We love that passage. We love to read Romans 5. We love to read the part where it says, while we were enemies of God, Jesus saved us and rescued us. We love to cling to that. But read the passage and see what it says about you. Weak, ungodly sinners who were enemies of God. That's who you were. That's our history. That's our background. So the, thing, the world comes to us and goes, who are you building this? And we go, we recognize who we were. We know who we were. 
We know who we were. His history, our history with God, proves His grace. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And I know you've heard it said before that dead men don't, don't rise themselves from the grave. Something outside them has to wake them up. Dead men don't save themselves. They're dead. Right? This is, this is a true statement. Who we used to be. Dead, weak, sinners, ungodly, enemies of God. Spitting in the face of God. And then God, by His grace, redeemed us. How much more powerful does that make our history? When we begin to rebuild the temple of God, when we begin to engage with the community of Jesus Christ and see the world around us change, when we begin to raise our kids in moral statutes and standards that the world thinks are batty, when we begin to do that, we see victory because we recognize who we used to be and we know who we are now is changed and redeemed and rescued. Then... All nations will come. Remember that one of the key passages that we see in the prophets, Zechariah, Micah, and Malachi, is that all nations are going to come for worship to this temple, right? So let's read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and remind ourselves, while we were dead in our sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive Together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. You have been saved by grace. You see, one of the powers of your faith, Christian, one of the powers of your, one of the beautiful powers behind your testimony is that you did not deserve salvation, but were given salvation as a gift from God. It was not earned, but it was handed to you. And you get to know Him and believe Him and have life. And not just life, but life abundant. Because He has made you. And He has called you. And you are His. You are His. So the servants of God of heaven and earth, they identify themselves as the sons who angered that God. And then finally here, they are approved. Jump down to verse 16 of chapter 5. They talk through all that has been done. In verse 16, Then this Sheshbazar, that was the first governor of the Jews to come, came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, Tatanai writes, Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem and let the king send his pleasure in this matter. They are approved by God. Jump to chapter 6, verse 12. This is the response from Cyrus the king. May the God who has caused his name to dwell over to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. They 
let Tatanai send his noise. They let Tatanai send his noise. They refuse to give names. They stand and they continue to build. And they start building and they don't stop. And then Darius writes back and says, not only should you let them build, but if you don't, this God is going to overthrow all of us. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. Let them build the temple. You see, God approved of their building. God used Cyrus, as we have seen over and over. God used Cyrus. God used Cyrus to to bring uh, the people back, to rebuild the temple. God used Cyrus. God gave a decree through the voice of Cyrus. And now Darius echoes that decree and goes, no, it's in the book. We're going to do it. And if you don't do it, this God is going to mess, mess everything up for us. He's going to destroy everything. Listen, Christian, God has made a way for us. This world may get dark. It may get dark. There may be persecution that rises and we may have struggles. There may be times when, when we have to work really hard to pursue the faith of Jesus Christ. There may be times when it becomes illegal to believe some of the things we believe. I hope you'll be in jail with me. There may be times when it becomes difficult. Listen, God has already made the way. He's already cleaned the way. And He is already victorious. Jesus Christ promises, I have overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I've already won the victory. Trust in Christ Jesus now with every part of your life. Every single part of who you are needs to be surrendered to Him in obedience to Him and delight in Him because He has made you for this purpose.